For the rest of you uh, youngish Christians and adult theologians, what is something bad that is happening to you right now? I want to stop for a minute. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to take a breath. What is a bad thing that is happening in your life or to you right now? I'm sure, you can open your eyes if you close them, I'm sure you can have something in mind. It may be something that is potentially bad, like something out in the future on the horizon that is looking bad, something that is leaving you unsure or unsettled or anxious. It looks bad. It might be today a very present bad, like another sermon after a mini-sermon. Or like you didn't get the donut holes outside, and there are donut holes, maybe. Or something more significant, you got into a fight with your spouse, or your brother, or your mom, or your dad on the way over here, and you're worried about it. Or it might be just this ever-present like ailment, like your body hurts, it always hurts, you're tired, You're regularly tired, or maybe you're just lonely, and you're oh so tired of being lonely. Now, some of these things are irritants, and some of them are bad, evil, more than irritants, like they're ever-present afflictions, and some are future anxieties, and some are like past tense bad, like something that has happened to you Or you did something and you can't take it back. You said something and it's out there. It's now done. The words hanging in the atmosphere between you and someone else or over you. Or you lost someone or something and they are gone. And they aren't coming back. And something's happened. And it can't be undone. It's past. Something you love is gone and it's finished. And now... What you're left with is just bad feelings, leftovers of badness. What do you do with the bad? I think we can quip, well, it is what it is. Or maybe a more positive spin than the cynical it is what it is. Everything just happens for a reason. That's a big one in our age, this belief in an existential universe that's meaningless, and yet this like hopeful Pollyanna belief that, oh, well, everything happens for a reason, bro. Maybe you can quip that, but it doesn't really take away the bad. Or maybe you can Murphy Law this thing, like if something bad can happen, it's going to happen, and of course it's going to happen to me. What do you do with the bad? How do you cope with the bad? What do you do with your loneliness when you were lonely yesterday and you're going to be lonely seemingly tomorrow? What do you do with the loss? And that loss is something that's lost forever. What do you do with your failure, your betrayal, your uncertain future? How do you live in a world that is bent with trouble? I don't want to be trite here this morning. Like, there is very real trouble and evil in this world, and all of us are living with some of it. How do you live 
with the reality of evil. Because some of you might be on the brink, like ready to toss in the faith towel. And some of you are already there. Even now, scoffing at any notion that God is good and kind and providential in his care and love. And some of you might just be so over it all that you want to numb out to any more troubles with an assortment of trinkets that will distract you. What do you do with the things that wake you up in the middle of the night and gnaw at you in the slow, quiet moments of your day? Well, Paul here gives us an incredible promise that we can very easily, by the way, turn into a Jesus Duke quip if we aren't careful. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Today we're going to look at this in four ways. First, promise. Second, qualification. Third, purpose. Four, plan. We have a promise God works all things together for the good. This is an incredible promise. God works all things. This thing, yes, this thing. That thing, yes, that thing. My thing, yes, your thing. The bad thing, yes, the bad thing. The really, really, really bad thing, yes, the really, really, really bad thing. That that thing that was done to me in the middle of the night, that thing, yeah, even that thing. All things. I want you to let that wash over you for a second. That God is at work taking the bad things and making them good. All the bad that's happening to you right now. From the past, in the present, and that you're worried about in the future... All those things God is taking and working for your good. Our God is so creative and sovereign. That word sovereign, his powerful rule. He's so creative and so sovereign that he bends the evil intended for your destruction and uses it for your good. John Irving starts his novel, A Prayer for Owen Meany, with these words. I am doomed to remember a boy with erect voice, not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person I had ever known or even because he was an instrument in my mother's death, but because he is the reason I believe in God. I am a Christian because of Owen Meany. When you hear that, it makes you keep, want to keep reading. Like, what, what happened? What happened to make Owen Meany a Christian? How is that possible? There's a testimony of Joseph in the Bible, right? We did Joseph last fall. Joseph sold by his brothers into slavery, falsely accused 
in his slavery by Potiphar's wife, the very family that he's serving and doing so with diligence and doing so with goodness, Potiphar's wife then turns and bends and uses it to accuse him of evil. He's then doomed to jail. Even though he's innocent, he sees others steal his wisdom and rise to the top to be promoted. And all of this God uses eventually to place Joseph in a position to help him deliver God's people. And at the end of Joseph's narrative, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How do we know? Well, we know because of Jesus that God will do this. What does Peter preach time and time again in Acts? He tells his hearers that God used the evil act of crucifixion. This Jesus whom you crucified, God used it to bring life and resurrection and salvation in the world. Paul will say this was in part, this was all part of God's plan, that he foreknew this, that he would use even this, the death of the sinless Son of God for good. Now, we hear this every week. I tell it to you every week. But it truly is shocking that God dies the human death to the powers of sin, death, and the devil. And just like Aslan, as the children, that they, when they see Aslan laying dead on the stone table and they're shocked and surprised, just like the disciples who run to the tomb seeing that Jesus' body is now no longer there and they're shocked and surprised, how could this be? That those events are meant to shock and surprise us. This is not just rote. Even though we hear it all the time, it is an amazing life-changing event that God took the evil things of the world that happened to Jesus, the Son of God and twisted them and bent them for our good. Paul is saying, how can we know that all things will be made for our good? Look to Jesus. Now this does not mean, by the way, that all things are good. The bad things that you are experiencing, that have been done to you, that you have done, that you are worried about in the future, all those bad things that you thought about this morning, they are evil. They are not good. The Greek here says God is working with those things, all those things. He works in all those things, even those horrible things, to accomplish his will. This is the sovereign providential hand. This is his love at work in all things. M. Night Shyamalan in his movie Signs kind of illustrates an idea of this. Mel Gibson plays a minister who has lost his faith after the tragic death of his wife. He lives with his idiosyncratic family on a farm. His brother is a failed baseball player. His son is a terrible, weak asthmatic. And his daughter leaves half-drunk glasses of water all over the house, claiming the water tastes funny. Judson, are you listening? I have a son who leaves half-glass, drunk glass waters all over the house. When aliens with evil intentions invade Earth and besiege Gibson's family in their farmhouse, all of those bad foibles, mistakes, evils are used. The baseball playing, the asthma, the drinking water, they're all used in an exact set of circumstances to survive the attack of the aliens. And all of that leads to Gibson recovering his faith. A prayer for Owen Meany is like that. 
The seeming random, tragic events of two boys' lives conspire to prepare them perfectly for their most pivotal moment, and this leads to the narrator's belief in God. But it's more than just these providential signs and more than just faith in Jesus being restored. It means, this verse, this promise means that there is no evil that God cannot use for our growth and his glory. God works all things together for the good. Now, second, there is a qualification to this promise. The qualification is for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The promise is for those who are in Christ. Remember, Paul has been saying in Romans that God gives this gift of his grace to those who are most undeserving. In fact, being undeserving is what qualifies them for the gift of this grace. So the qualification starts with that. The giving of the gift of grace to the unqualified. That's where the gift begins. That's where the qualification for this promise begins. And then that gift is a change of location. You are moved. We are moved from being in the flesh to being in Christ. This change of location begins with a call. God calls us. He pursues us. He then adopts us, according to Romans 8, into his family. When a pastor takes over a new church, he's given a call. In our tradition, this call is written out in letter form, and it is then handed to the pastor, and he takes it in hand, and he's asked, do you receive this call? And he takes it and receives it. And then he moves from whatever his other call was, whatever his previous occupation was, he moves in a change of a location to this new call. And that church then promises to care for the pastor and provide for him. This is what God does for all of us who believe. They are called and placed in a new location In Christ, and it is a gift of grace to the undeserving. We can't qualify for that change. We can't move ourselves from one kingdom to the next. We must be moved, and God gives us faith to move us into Christ. Paul knows that this move does something dynamic in us, it changes our hearts to be a people who are loved by God and then in return love God. And to love God is to do what? What do you do with those whom you love? You orient your life around them. You believe like they are your greatest good, and you lean into that reality. Paul qualifies this promise for the working of the good of all things to those that are called and those who love God. So the question this morning for all of us always is, have you been called? The answer to that is yes, because God's call goes out to all. It is an unequivocal, universal call to all who are undeserving, which is all of us because of sin. God's call goes out to all of us, to every man and woman. Now, not all have heard that call. Not all have received that message. But God is sending that call out to all. Have you been called? Well, you're here this morning, and I'm telling you, you have been called. You are being called now by God's Spirit. Have you responded to that call? Have you listened to God's Spirit and responded to the call that he's placed on your life? And if you have been called, do you love? 
Do you love God? Is your life reflective of that love? Is it orientated, bent around God, his purposes and his plan? All things, Paul says, work for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And that leads us to point three. What's the purpose? The purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here, Paul is instilling this church with confidence in this incredible promise. This church, by the way, certainly knew bad things, right? We entered this letter remembering that the Jewish Christians had been exiled, sent out of Rome, cast out, and now they have returned, and they've returned to a church that used to be led by them, but now is led by Romans, Gentiles, and there's conflict in the changing of leadership. This church knew bad things. They knew threats. Many of this church were slaves. They knew sickness. They knew death. And so Paul here reminds them that in God's loving hands, all those things that they're currently living out and experiencing as the church in the city of Rome, in the empire of Rome, all of those things are meant for their good and for the purpose that they might become like Jesus. We charge Luke and Paul this morning to becoming like Christ, to becoming like servants who, like Jesus, give their life away, who serve instead of being served. This is the purpose of God's loving providence, friends, that we might be bent to fit into eternity. We talked about this a bit last week, how our groaning fits us for the life that is to come, both in the now and in what's to come. The groaning helps us hope. As we groan, our faith is enacted. Well, this is how it's enacted. The purposes of God are enacted this morning. We are fit, bent for eternity through suffering so that we might look like Jesus. And God uses those things for our good. Each statement in 29 and 30 forms what some call the golden chain, a link in the chain. And he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. It secures believers to their, this chain secures believers to their future glory in Christ. Edwards, the commentator, says, salvation does not just happen. It is the result of God's eternal will. God's will is not a groping of divine benevolence. Salvation is not a matter of harps and golden streets or the amorphous release of nirvana. If believers want to know what God is like and what they by his grace will become, they must look to Jesus. Hear this. We cannot be bent by God's creative powers for the good unless by his grace we look like Jesus. Like, God is working the good in your life for the express purpose that you will look like his son. That your life will look like his son, that the things you do would be in step with the son. 
That is why he is bending you and working all of those things out for your good. So you look like him. So that he will be the firstborn among many brothers. So that there will be a family that you're adopted into by God's grace. Salvation is God's personal, eternal plan to make believers conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. In the New Testament, we're normally referred to as believers, disciples, slaves, apostles, sheep, but here we're called brothers and sisters of Jesus. Jesus is our faithful brother. For prodigals and self-righteous older siblings, we need a brother so we can share in our brother's glory. This is God's purpose, that we might be adopted into his family so that we might look like the son. My boys all look alike. From our firstborn, Jed, to Judson, to Deacon. You look at pictures of them, they are almost splitting images. At different times, Danette and I have had to look at each other and and just we laugh at the different stages of their life and how they remind us of the oldest. That's both the benefit and the curse of being the oldest, by the way. This is what God intends to do in working all things together for the good. So we'll look like his son. What does his son do? He pursues. He pursues us. The son pursues us. He leaves the 99 for the one. The son offers life to us. He does it by his sacrificial love. He incarnates God for us, God in the flesh. We too, the church, are to be a body of Christ, to incarnate God in the world, to be a faithful presence of God's love. And this isn't simply play practice. It's, it's a rehearsal for what's to come, that we might be bent towards eternity. Let's pause and think about the bent nature of God's image bearers in our world right now. Think about our fellow humans, us, people we know who are bent by the world's suffering, bent by their own sin. And what God charges the church to be is to be conformed to the image of the Son and to live life in the world as image bearers of the Son that we might look like the Son so that others in turn might be one to the Son so that they too might look like the Son. This is not a Pollyanna-quipped optimism. There is real stories of pain and loss and suffering, real bent stories that God intends to rescue and redeem for his own. This is God's plan. That's our last point. God's plan is the for notice the vocabulary here is bent towards the future. The three words in verses 29 deal with the future, foreknew, predestined, firstborn, God's providence. He is working first and then guiding his control of redemption. Now, these words might be hard for us. Our our radical individualism blinds us to the goodness of these words, but foreknew refers to God's eternal purposes, that God, in eternity past, set a plan for the redemption of his world that he created, and that he predestined. This refers to God's eternal power to actually affect the purposes that he planned. We see this in Jesus, by the way. The New Testament does not dwell on predestination. And when it mentions it, it's anchored in Christ. Jesus is the 
culmination of God's will for, a wor- for the world, a will that is past, he foreknew it, a world that is present, he calls it, a world that is future, it's going to be glorified. And it all finds its, its encapsulation in Jesus. And so predestination is a doctrine of assurance that God is for us, that he ordains what is bad, not causes it, ordains what is bad to bring those who love God into the glory of his son. This is God's plan. And the outworking of that plan, we are called. All of us. And those who respond to that call by God's grace and predestination and foreknowledge are justified. This call is efficacious. We talked about this in Romans, that the grace, the gift of grace is efficacious. It does something in us. It affects something in us. We are justified, made right, not just forgiven, but made righteous, and we will be glorified. They are insured. We are insured of a future that we will be fit for eternity. Ray Orton says that it's like looking at an artist's magnum opus. God has begun his work on us and is fashioning us into what he wants us to become. Where we're being changed from what we are now with all our struggles and failures and being liberated into the glorious image of God's Son in resurrection and immortality forever. Not bad. Do you realize that if you are in Christ, you are God's personal project? He has undertaken to make you glorious. And amazingly, Paul says that God is working everything together in order to accomplish that purpose. This means that God is at work in every circumstance of our lives with the ultimate goal of completing that work in us. There's not a single thing that can ever happen to us that will not accomplish God's good purpose in our lives to make us into who he wants us to be. So God's love employs the worst of life for his loving purposes. Friends, even your sins, even your sins God is using. Everything, including evil and tragedy. The Bible is saying that all things in your story, not some things, not just nice nice things, but all things in your story are being used by God to fulfill this great plan of redemption, this golden chain, this union with Christ that you might become like Jesus. The Heidelberg Catechism says it like this, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, Prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. As one theologian put it, God's unstoppable purpose in calling believers to salvation cannot be frustrated. And thus he employs all things to bring about the plan he had from the beginning in the lives of his believers. What does this look like? Well, Philip Yancey, the author, tells a story. He says, in high school, I took pride in my ability to play chess. I joined the chess club, and during lunch hour, I could be found sitting at a table with other nerds, poring over books with titles like classic King Pawn openings. I studied techniques. I won most of my matches and put the game aside for 20 years. 
Then in Chicago, I met a truly fine chess player who had been perfecting his skills long since high school. And when we played a few matches, I learned what it was like to play against a master. Any classic offense I tried, he countered with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox techniques, he incorporated my bold forays into his winning strategies. Although I had complete freedom to make any move I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered very much to rebel against its original design. But even as we do, we end up ironically serving his goal of of restoration and glory. If I accept this blueprint, a huge step of faith, I confess, it transforms how I view both good and bad things that happen. Good things such as health and talent and money, I can present to God as offerings to serve his purposes. And bad things too, disabilities, poverty, dysfunctions, failures, can be redeemed as the very instruments that drive me and others to God. Blueprint, or maybe better, tapestry. Have you ever compared the front and the back of a tapestry? The front of a tapestry is art. In the hands of a skilled weaver, it displays incredible artistry and fine detail. The world's best artistry, the world's best art museums collect the world's best tapestries and display them there as examples of a rare but beautiful form of art. But if you look at the back of the tapestry... It's a mess. The tapestry is made by weaving together different colored threads. The images and the designs are created by the interplay between the different colors and textures. What is clear on the front is opaque on the back. The back shows something of the image, but it looks more like a child's attempt than a master's. It lacks the nuance, the clarity, the detail. Where the front is smooth, the back is covered in knots and loose ends. Friends, we are meant to see and admire the front of the tapestry, not the back. It's a revelation from God's perspective which sees the embroidery of human life not as we see it. From the backside of knots and tattered ends, but from the finished side of the pattern. The challenge of the present is to believe that by God's grace, the knots and the rough ends are actually weaving a pattern which is already known to God, even if it's unclear to us. And the glory of the future will be seen in the completed pattern. Corrie ten Boone writes in her poem, The Master Weaver's Plan, Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. For now, we get to see only the underside of all that God is weaving together in this world. And in seeing the underside, we are clinging to the promise that someday we will see the upper side and marvel at what God has done. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us this morning to believe that you are this God who foreknew us. Even before we were born, you knew us and that you predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son. And so you called us and you justified us and you will glorify us. 
I confess when I look at my life, what I see is knots and rough ends. I pray, God, that you would help us in the midst of seeing those things and experiencing those things to believe that you are weaving something on the upper side that is beautiful, frayed knots and all, even those bad things, all the bad things we thought about this morning, that you're taking every single one of them and weaving them into a tapestry that tells your story both to us and the world. Help us to believe that this morning, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.